Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. And Karen Tkach-Tusman, Senior Editor. This week's pod, Vertex and CRISPR wow with their latest cut of cell therapy data for hemoglobinopathies, predicting the fallout from private equities inroads into biotech, progress in D.C. on user fee bills in the House and Senate, and then we'll also be checking in on the latest from BioCentury's distillery, this week with a focus on novel ways to target KRAS-driven cancers and a MIF nuclease inhibitor for Parkinson's disease. Well, the first place we'll be starting is with the most recent data from Vertex and CRISPR. These partners published data over the weekend that points to the potential for a functional cure in both beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease. What's your take on how this uh, longer-term data stacks up and what it means for some of the sort of next-gen gene editing players that are also working in this space? So I think the important take-home from the longer-term data is that this is looking like a potential functional cure for these two indications, for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. All of the sickle cell disease patients were free of vaso-occlusive crisis during the follow-up of between, I think it was two months and three years, which is incredibly impressive. And then 42 of the 44 beta thalassemia patients were off of transfusion. So the data looked great. And I think the question for the other companies who are working on new modalities in the space, especially sort of the gene editing 2.0 companies, is whether there's room for improvement upon these response rates, especially in the, you know, the short to midterm follow-up, which is what we have here. Um, so the difference between what CRISPR is working on, uh, CRISPR and Vertex, and what some of the other companies who are a little earlier in development is working on is that CRISPR and Vertex are disrupting a gene to drive expression of fetal hemoglobin. Some of the other companies are trying to restore expression of you know, the full length normal hemoglobin, which the assumption is that will lead to completely normal red blood cell. And the hope was that this would lead to completely normal functioning of the red blood cells. And I guess the question now is whether increasing fetal hemoglobin expression is good enough or if there, if there actually is room to improve. And if we'll see a difference in the timeline that's reasonable for a clinical trial. I think we should probably take a step and just note that it's quite an achievement for the technology. And so in some ways, it massively de-risks for a lot of other companies and, you know, the idea that this is doable. So Lauren, the, the question I have is about the finances. There's, there's like 100,000 Americans who have sickle cell disease. If this is going to be priced anywhere near the way that similar therapies are priced, it's hard to imagine what the fiscal impact is going to be. Is there anything that you've seen that either suggests that the pricing could be lower or that there could be a, a rational way to, to find a subset of patients who are the ones who are most in need of a therapy like this? So I haven't heard any of the companies at this point talking about pricing. Um, I, I personally haven't heard too much about the pricing discussion, but in this trial, these were patients who have severe cases of sickle cell anemia. They're, you know, they're having these vaso-occlusive crises. So this was a subset of patients who were having severe manifestations of the disease. I'm, I'm not sure what an approval would look like or how many patients would, would ultimately be eligible for these therapies. But 
obviously pricing has been an issue. And, and that sort of brings up the competition from Bluebird, which had the advisory committee meeting last week. And they had a, a huge vote in favor of their beta thalassemia gene replacement therapy. And again, they've had, you know, lots of pricing issues in Europe. So that's, that's going to be a big issue for their therapy as it becomes available. But it, that disease is not as prevalent as sickle cell. So Lauren, what, what in your mind does this mean then for that Bluebird therapy then, given that they just got a nod, but some of the issues that were discussed at that advisory committee panel, what does this data mean for them then? The Bluebird's data were really good on efficacy. I, I think that it's going to come down to safety. And in that case, there's this theoretical risk of cancer that comes with the fact that Bluebird's gene therapies use lentiviral vectors, which integrate into the genome. And while the vector used in the beta thalassemia programs in Betty cell has not been linked to any cancer. You know, there have been some genetic changes. There have been some concerning integration sites and things like that. And some of Bluebird's other gene therapies have caused cancers in trials. I think, well, specifically one vector has been shown to be the likely cause of several cases of cancer. So I don't think we know for sure that using CRISPR is necessarily safer than using antiviral vector. There have always been these questions of off-target edits and, and what those potentially cause as problems in the future. I don't think there is any reason to be concerned based on the data that we have, though. So I, I'm not sure what it means for Bluebird. Obviously, Bluebird is, is nearing a potential approval. I think their Dupa data is at the end of the summer. So, you know, they're out in front of anyone else at this point. Back to the technological breakthrough for a minute. You know, you talked about Bluebird and their safety profile. So how much would this read through this capability to edit cells with sufficient efficiency, meaning like enough cells edited to get a functional readout? Is that something that's just going to be disease by disease and the same on toxicity or, you know, are there sort of adjacent indications where drug developers should be sort of sharpening their pencils and thinking this is good news for them? I think this is good news for everyone working on ex vivo CRISPR. I, I also think that for these kind of knockout applications, there, there hasn't been a huge concern that you won't be able to edit enough cells, especially in an ex vivo setting. The question will be when you're looking at knocking in genes, you know, using homology-directed repair, which is sort of the next step for the CRISPR technology. And, and that's what some of the companies who are using sickle cell as a proof of concept are also doing, you know, to express that, that full-length hemoglobin. Obviously, it's a big advance for the technology, and I think it's an important advance. I think we will get more of an idea of how great the potential is for this technology when we see the knock-in efficacy and how that translates to human benefits in clinical trials, which I think will come up relatively soon. And I think also, you know, this doesn't tell us how well the technology will work when the gene editing tools themselves are delivered in vivo and how high that efficiency can get. And that's also something, when you're talking about editing stem cells in vivo, that's something that we have not seen yet, and that's something that will come in the future. And that could potentially open up the accessibility, right? If you eliminate the need to do hematopoietic stem cell transplants? Absolutely. I think that's, you know, I think the question is whether there's any room to improve in the ex vivo therapies that require the hematopoietic stem cell transplants at this point, or if, you know, is the next thing to move the needle will really be when we see something that doesn't require that step, which, you know, is a huge burden for patients. And it's it's not as dangerous as doing an allogeneic stem cell transplant, but there are a lot of risks with the lymphodepletion and 
and all of the different steps that are involved in the transplant. Great. Thanks. Well, we'll definitely look forward to coverage from both Lauren and Karen on this topic and uh, more I'm sure that will be coming out later this week. Moving on, the next topic we're going to discuss is the recent trend we've seen of private equity firms making deals to move into life science VCs. So the first one came back in 2018, Blackstone's acquisition of Claris. But it's really, I think, started to stimulate this conversation of it being a trend more recently with EQT's takeout of LSP back in November, and then more recently, Carlisle's acquisition of Abingworth, and then the most recent one being Apollo's partnership with Sophie Nova. And so I was able to have some conversation with six VCs to talk a little bit about what their their expectations are for how this changes sort of the biotech landscape. And I think one of the clear things that's going to happen here is we're going to see larger growth funds coming out of these shops, primarily because if you look at the scale of, of the existing VCs and some of the PE firms that are acquiring them, I think that, that scale is going to have to happen for them to have a meaningful impact when you're at $2 billion assets under management and you're moving into a 500 billion assets under management, there has to be some scale there to to make it more important for the PEs. So Stephen, I I know that you sort of have referred to this recent spate as in the last six months, but we know that in at least one of those, probably more, that's for Sofinova, the conversation was triggered by the the Claris takeout. What was that in 2018? That's right. And so, you know, we have to assume, and I think Francesco de Robertis from Medici even said this to you, right? There's probably a lot of conversations going on inside VC firms right now or between VCs and PEs. I mean, it's got to be making a lot of them think about it. And, and I'm sort of wondering, in your mind, how big could this become as, as a trend? Do you think it's still just going to be just a few that create these alliances or get taken out? Or do you think this could become a sort of more macro thing we see? I think we will see more of these, but I think it probably depend on the PE firm themselves. Because So what I was hearing a lot of was that we're just seeing more and more competition for the more traditional buyout deals that these PE firms do. And so as those deals kind of get harder and harder, get more competitive, basically these PE firms are looking for other kind of white space where they can themselves have new business opportunities, offer a more broad basically portfolio of products to their own LPs, right? So rather than just having a buyout and having sort of these very large funds, you can also offer venture, which offers sort of a differentiated return profile for a different type of investment class. So I think that broadening of what they can offer, I think is something that is quite appealing to these firms. So I don't think this is the last we'll see. I think there will be more. It's just, what I am curious about is the fact that a lot of these deals are being driven by the fact that these PE firms don't have the expertise in-house to make these sorts of investments, right? So they're essentially buying the expertise and the knowledge of these VC firms of the partners. And so what I'm curious to see here in the next you know, year or two, especially on the senior side, how many of these people stick around? Or if there is a bit of a diaspora in the same way that we see you know, when a large biotech gets taken out, are we going to see some of these partners from EQT or from Abingworth stepping out and starting their own funds? Really good point. And I just want to say a couple of things um, and ask you one, actually. So one is just to reiterate the Sofinova deal is a slightly different one because they haven't been taken out. It's very different. And they went to, and Sofinova does a lot of really early stage investments, right? 
And, and Andrew went to great lengths to say, this is a partnership. We still here. We're still players in this space. Yep. You know, they have a 20% stake in Sofinova. But as you look at that, you know, and think about it, what's kind of the, the sweet spot or the profile of a VC firm that might be of interest to a PE? I don't think they're going to be... In- for all the reasons that we've already talked about in terms of growth and the ability to deploy large amounts of capital, they're not going to be interested in a firm that is just doing company creation or just doing startups. I think that's something that won't work. Right. I think it has to be at least a firm like Sophie Nova where they have a crossover fund. So they have a growth vehicle. They have their primary fund too, right? But they also have this growth vehicle. So it has to be someone I think that has exposure to that growth investment and can build out, scale that side of the business whether that's a Forbion who just last week announced the close of their second growth fund at 470 million euros and looking to close it at 600 or they themselves talking to Sander. I mean, sounds like they are intending to hope to be able to compete and invest alongside these larger firms. Yeah. So that's where I sort of see one of the main sort of requirements for these, for these PE firms. Right. And it's going to be interesting to see, like you say, how the talent kind of recycles through the ecosystem. So that, that will be one to watch. Especially on that early stage side, because that was, if there was any concern about these deals, it's expressing a little bit of worry saying, well, Abingworth and, and EQT, while well, they were not, wasn't their primary sort of reputation as being huge on the company creation side, they were still participating in their fair share of Series A rounds. And so if they start needing to deploy larger checks and can't do that early stage stuff, yeah, I'll just be curious to see if some of those folks that maybe took more of an interest on on the early stage things if they end up stepping out and, and, and doing their own thing. So now turning to the latest from Washington, Steve, I believe that we're seeing more progress made on the user fee bills this week. Is that correct? Can you uh, sort of detail for us what's different between the House and Senate versions of those bills? Well, yeah. First, taking a step back, last week, the House passed their user fee reauthorization legislation, which was a big step forward. There was supposed to be a Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee markup of their version of it last week. That got postponed by a week um, because there was a lack of consensus on the committee about some issues. They're going to do their markup tomorrow. The biggest difference between the House and the Senate versions is the fact that the Senate bill has the Valid Act. And I think if this makes it into law, it's going to be remembered as the most important part of the user fee reauthorization package. The Valid Act addresses serious flaws in regulation that have created potential for harm, and we've seen that in COVID. It creates a level playing field for in vitro and laboratory-developed tests. It creates an explicit risk-based approach to both in vitro and laboratory-developed tests that relies on understanding the overall quality systems that manufacturers have in place, and it incorporates post-market surveillance of test performance into the regulatory paradigm. So, Steve, it's going to be hard for some of our listeners to understand why this difference between tests and how they're regulated could be one of the most significant things to come out of it and how that really could have such an impact. So why is that such a big deal and what is this massive problem? The problem is that due to quirks in the law and due to quirks in interpretation of the law, which are too complicated and boring to go into today, Tests that are performed at a single location have been regulated differently 
from tests that are sold as kits and they can be done in multiple locations. Those that are done at a single location are called laboratory developed tests. In the past, this distinction hasn't been that important because the tests that were done in single locations, for example, in a hospital or an academic medical center, weren't that innovative and they, they weren't that critical for patients. That's changed. And the other thing that has changed is that an entire industry sprang up around this kind of loophole in the law. There's been a lot of venture investment in laboratory-developed tests that are performed at one central laboratory that are largely unregulated by FDA. It's critically important for public health and for the, the viability of the diagnostics industry that laboratory-developed tests be regulated. At the same time, it's really important also that FDA has the right level of regulation. FDA doesn't have the resources to regulate every single test. It's not needed to re regulate every single test. And the academic medical centers don't have the funding and the ability to create the regulatory systems to deal with FDA for every single test that they do. So what the Valid Act does, which is really important, is that it sets up a, a system for triaging tests, whether they're in vitro or laboratory developed. And the ones that are highest risk have pre-market requirements. The ones that are lower risk have post-market requirements or the requirements are around ensuring that the places that are performing the tests have quality systems in place um, that give some confidence that they're doing the test properly. So in this scenario, which most people think is going to happen, that there's another pandemic or monkeypox or, or whatever happens, does this mean suddenly we're going to understand much better which of these new tests for them work, or is it going to slow down how much they come onto the market? What, what actual impact is it going to have in this sort of pandemic scenario? I think in a pandemic scenario, it would put the United States in a much better position than it has been for COVID. Uh, for COVID, there was a, a tremendous amount of confusion around tests. There was confusion around what authorities FDA had. The companies that developed the laboratory-developed tests didn't jump into COVID testing for a long time. There was a, a big gap. Part of the reason for that gap was this lack of clarity about the regulatory oversight, uh, and that left the United States flying blind for the first, what, six months of the pandemic, you know, where it was spreading in the United States, and, and we didn't know, and we didn't know how it was spreading and so on. So I think the Valid Act would be really critical to putting the United States in a better position if and when we have another pandemic or public health crisis that requires mass testing like that. Steve, is there any reason to think that this Ballot Act edition will encounter friction in the House? It's possible. Look, the reason that th this thing has been kicking around for a very long time and there is opposition to it, the biggest opposition to it comes from hospitals and small academic medical centers, which want to be com either completely exempt from it or have an even longer transition period or grandfathering period than what's allowed for in the Valid Act. I think that there's enough momentum behind this that it actually will get across the finish line. It wouldn't surprise me if there has to be some more adjustments to the bill in the House or in the Senate before it gets through. But, you know, I think that this is the, the best opportunity for getting something like this done 
it's going to come around for a long time. And, and I think that there is going to be a big push to get it through. Sorry, one more question, Steve. Why should hospitals be exempt from this? What is their argument? Their argument is that they're small and they don't have regulatory departments, that they know what they're doing and what they're doing isn't high risk. And that also that they argue that imposing regulatory requirements on them will hinder innovation. It'll make it more difficult for them to do iterative changes to their tests or to come up with completely new tests that are innovative. The way that the bill is structured takes those concerns into consideration, and advocates for the bill say that that hospitals and academic medical centers would be protected from a lot of the things that they're concerned about and that actually they're going to be fine and this should go forward. My guess is that like a lot of these things, that it's kind of a, a bargaining situation and Congress may be persuaded to do even more to ensure that there aren't negative consequences for the hospitals and academic medical centers. But in the end, this is probably going to happen. And I think in the end, everybody's going to be better off for it, including the hospitals and academic medical centers. Great. Thank you, Steve. We'll be very interested in following that as, uh, as it uh, unfolds later this week. And now we'd like to turn to my favorite segment of the podcast and Aww. to our own in-house master of all things translational, Karen. Can you uh, tell us what the focus of the distillery is for this week? Sure. So for those that may not know, the distillery is BioCentury's collection of brief summaries of translational studies, often coming out of academia, that show a disease-modifying effect and therefore a near-term translational opportunity, either for a new biological target for a disease or for a maybe a new compound to go after perhaps some known biology of interests. I always like to highlight a couple of the papers we distill between 20, 30, up to sometimes 40 a month. But today I'm just going to highlight two that caught my eye. One was from a group at uh, Yonsei University in South Korea, and they were targeting the interaction between KRAS and this protein called AMP2DX2 which is an isoform of a tumor suppressor protein called AMP2. Uh, and this isoform kind of competitively inhibits AMP2's interaction with KRAS. And so uh, it looks like normally AMP2 interacting with KRAS sort of suppresses tumors, but the competitive interaction of this isoform gets in the way of that and inhibits the tumor suppression activity. So uh, they had some biomarker data pointing to the relevance of this isoform in lung cancer and colon cancer samples. And then they did a screen for a compound that actually disrupted the isoform's interaction with KRAS um, and showed disease-modifying effects in some tumor models, both with and without KRAS mutations. So Karen, how could this improve on the KRAS inhibitors that we already have on the market and in clinical development? Well, one thing we're seeing, we see it at conferences and in papers is companies looking at ways to get at biology that intersects with KRAS to potentially layer on top of the KRAS inhibitors or, or address resistance as it arises, which I, I think it's, it's been started to be acknowledged as a problem. And so potentially this could, could fit into that paradigm of getting at related biology to KRAS-driven 
cancer that can complement or maybe come after the KRAS inhibitors. But uh, yeah, and so one thing that we definitely try in the distilleries to not make it all about cancer because there's tons of tons of cancer papers that come out, but we're always looking for other indications as well. And uh, one that caught my eye was about a macrocyclic inhibitor of MIFS nuclease activity for Parkinson's. And this one was really interesting because it brought out some biology I hadn't heard of before. And specifically, it talked about preventing parthenatic neuronal death, which is a form of cell death induced by overactivation of DNA damage repair regulator PARP1. So we're used to thinking about PARPs in cancer and the um, sort of synthetic lethality world, but apparently uh, there are forms of cell death that can take place in neurons that are driven by excess PARP1 activity. So in this paper, which was published in Cell by a group from Johns Hopkins, they first poked at that biology by knocking out MIF and showing that uh, that had these uh, disease-modifying effects in a model of Parkinson's. And then they went onto a chemical screen of a rapamycin-related library of macrocycles and found a compound that specifically inhibited MIF's nucleus activity, which they related to this form of cell death. And that showed uh, some disease-modifying effects as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Karen. Um, very quickly, in 30 seconds or less, can you also tell us about the webinar that you are uh, hosting tomorrow? Gladly. Uh, so tomorrow I have the pleasure of moderating a conversation with some folks from Oaken, uh, a data science company, as well as someone from BMS and someone from CancerLink-Q, which is part of ASCO and, and relates to their data science work. And basically, we'll be looking at the fascinating world of covariate adjustment in clinical trials. So this is where you normalize or, or account for baseline patient variables that affect how that patient might have fared even without intervention. So things like body weight, potentially, or uh, some clinical factors. And historically, people have kind of done an approach to covariate. When you pick, what are your covariates? They've sort of done it based on some expert opinions or maybe what the last trial did. And Oaken's taking a look at data-driven ways of picking which covariates you adjust for and how that can open up greater power and a broader elig eligibility criteria in trials. So please tune in to learn about that. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Karen. Stories covering the FDA advisory committee decisions for the lentiviral gene therapies from Bluebird, along with stories about the PE deals for life science VCs and the distillery, are available on BioCentury's website. You can also find Steve's special report podcast from last week on fixing FDA's broken advisory panels. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.